songs like those. We don't deserve to be near or have God as our God, but we certainly don't deserve to have a God like that either. And that's who he is. And that's amazing. To have a God who is so full of the things that we've sung about this morning, and he's that for us, is amazing. So praise the Lord. Well, one year ago, today, November 1st, Katie and I had the privilege of bringing home a little boy from Ethiopia um, named Tabarak. And at that time, that was his name, and that's still legally his name, even though we got to get it desperately changed, because <laughs> we've been calling him Judson for a year. But his name is Judson Abraham Redfern. Today, he's 18 months old, almost 19 months, and... Many of you prayed fervently and gave sacrificially and participated joyfully in his arrival. And for that, one child's life has been dramatically changed and two adults' lives have been dramatically changed. So thank you all very much for the way that you have loved us. We are, he is here because of your generosity and your love. Well, not only last year, but last month, Katie and I traveled to Nashville to attend a conference called Together for Adoption. And Together for Adoption is just meant to bring um, families together, parents who are either have adopted or who are interested in adopting, to kind of promote that cause, which is so central to the heart of God. And while we were there, we saw a lot of signs. One of the signs was November 8th, Orphan Sunday. And I had no idea what an orphan Sunday was, and I didn't know it was November 8th. So when I got home, I got on the website and, and uh, inquired a little bit about it and found out that the purpose of it was it was a gathering of um, really several different Christian associations who are designed uh, and, and uh, basically to support adoption and to support orphan care and to support the church's involvement in that. And I thought, well, let's see if we can't uh, preach on this. Because to my knowledge, I don't know if this, is, this has ever been preached on, at least not while I've been here the last seven years. Um, so the, the organization was called Cry of the Orphan, and it was designed to kind of bring a unified voice to this effort to kind of rally the church for orphan care. And, and these things have been taking place over the years. But I thought, is this a worthwhile thing, especially considering that we're doing it on November 1st and not November 8th? And I said, yes, I do believe this is a worthwhile thing. I was, I was helped by a quote from Brian Lewis. Brian is the president of America World Adoption Association through whom we adopted Judson. And he says, having an orphan Sunday is a great way for the church to be focused one Sunday a year on an issue that's very close to the heart of God. As we gather together in worship, we recognize that Christ has not left us as spiritual orphans, and we can corporately remember those among us who, have, who are orphaned and in need of a family. Russ Moore, adoptive dad and dean of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, reminds us that Orphan Sunday isn't about charity. It's about the mission of Christ. I pray that every gospel-transformed congregation will observe Orphan Sunday, calling all Christians to our mandate to image Christ by caring for his little brothers and sisters, the fatherless of the world. So I want to join Russ Moore in that, and I know that your hearts want to join Dr. Moore in that call as well. 
So while we're a week early, our pastors have granted me permission to bring you a sermon this morning on the theme of adoption. And it's our desire to partner with brothers and sisters in other churches all across the United States to, in the language of Isaiah 117, defend the cause of the fatherless, to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. God has called his church to pure and undefiled religion, as we saw from our recent study of James chapter 1, verse 27. And part of that pure and undefiled religion is visiting orphans in their distress. Now let me throw some statistics at you, okay? Some statistics of the current global orphan crisis. If this doesn't stagger you and overwhelm you, I don't know quite what will. There are currently about 143 million orphans in the world. They have all lost one or both of their parents. If all the orphans in the world were to move to the country of Mexico tomorrow, the population of the country would double growing from 108,700,000 to about 251,700,000. Over 16 million children were newly orphaned five years ago, and that number continues to go up. There are approximately 17.5 million orphans who are between the age of zero to five. There are approximately 47 million orphans who are between 6 to 11. And there are approximately 79 million orphans who are between the ages of 12 to 17. 87.6 million orphans live in Asia. That's roughly 6% of the children. 43.4 million orphans live in Africa. And sub-Saharan Africa has the highest percentage of children who are orphans at 12%. There are as many orphaned and vulnerable children in Ethiopia and in Africa as there are in greater New York City. 12.4 million orphans live in Latin America. 6% of them are of all, that's 6% of all the children. Orphan children are much more likely to be working for in some sort of exploit, exploitation, trafficking, discrimination, They're to be victims of violence, abuse, sexual abuse, sex trade, in some sort of domestic service or working commercial agriculture or working as street vendors. Almost 1.5 million children live in public care in Central and Eastern Europe. And in the United States, moving from the international to the domestic, more than 800,000 children pass through this country's foster care system every year. There are over 500,000 children in the foster care system right now, and 129,000 of those children are waiting to be adopted for foster care. Only 18%, that is 50,000 children, of those 500,000 are adopted each year. Roughly four out of five will remain in foster care all the way till they are age out of foster care and enter into life with no life skills set up for poverty. Most children are in foster care. They wait over two years to be adopted, if they are adopted at all. And between 118,000 and 127,000 children have been adopted every year since 1987. That's more than 50% of all adoptions. And they are all handled by public agencies or come from countries outside of the United States. And finally, more than a third of Americans, according to some, some recent statistics, have seriously considered adopting, but no more than 2% have actually adopted. Only 4% of families with children contain adopted children in the United States. So this is a great need. If the church is to fulfill this monumental task of visiting orphans and widows in their distress, then we have to think seriously about how we as one local church can participate in this. 
My desire this morning is to kind of kick off a week of thinking about adoption with a sermon entitled, From Adopted to Adopting, Thinking Biblically About Our Adoption in Christ and Its Implications for Our Adoption of Children. Now, neither of these two realities are ignored by this congregation. This congregation has been and is, does continue to be very pro-adoption. Many of the families in our own church have pursued that and adopted children. We are also no stranger to our adoption in Christ. We celebrated that this morning. We celebrate that frequently. And we are glad that God is our Father. And we recognize ourselves as being spiritual orphans who were separated and alienated from the family of God, only to be brought near through Jesus Christ. But have we connected the vertical with the horizontal? In other words, have we connected our adoption in Christ with its implications for our adoption of children? Now that question I'm not exactly sure of. But in fact, our adoption in Christ is one, is most fully understood as we participate in the adoption of children, whether that is adopting them ourselves or financially contributing to seeing them adopted. Our adoption of children then also allows us to more fully understand God's adoption of us. And also, our adoption in Christ serves as the greatest motivation and incentive for adopting children. As Dan Kruver writes in his article, The Prodigal Suspicion and the Global Orphan Crisis, he says, If we are not confident in the love, the personal love of God the Father as he sees us as his children, our eyes will turn inward with the result that we will primarily be concerned with our needs, our lack, our disappointments, rather than the needs of others, especially those of orphans. As a result, we will be afraid to risk or do the hard thing if it needs to be done. Or we will give our lives to care for orphans as an attempt to earn our Father's love. However, when we are convinced that the Father delights in us, even as He delights in Jesus, we then have the emotional capital to visit orphans in their distress over the long haul. And that's my burden this morning. My burden this morning is not to lay into you and tell you, you should be a more adopting congregation. You should, be a more, you should be more compassionate for the needs of orphans. Did you not hear those statistics and just beat you to death? That's not my desire. My desire is to gaze up. To look together for a few brief moments at the glory of our adoption in Christ. And in hopes that you will go out of here looking out and seeing the implications for how God would have you be involved in caring for the neediest people in the world. Now, God always works this way. He takes us from the vertical and then moves us to the horizontal, doesn't he? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Vertical love comes before horizontal love. Vertical love comes down, God meeting us in our need, in grace, moving us to love others. But it also works with forgiveness that way, doesn't it? Forgive just as God in Christ has forgiven you. God starts vertically. He comes down. He forgives us. And then out of that resource, out of that, we are given now resources to forgive others. So it's, it works from the vertical to the horizontal. Same way with adoption. God's adoption of us informs and shapes and motivates the horizontal adoption of children. 
So I firmly believe that it's only through understanding and rejoicing in God's adoption of us that we are going to be equipped with the emotional and spiritual resources to visit orphans in their distress. So let's move from the vertical to the horizontal, okay? Point number one is the vertical, God's adoption of us. And I've got four things to say about our adoption by God. Well, we're on the cusp of the holiday season, right? I can already smell it. I can feel it. It's in the air. Which means, a lot, among a lot of things, it, it means this. Movies on a loop. Running nonstop on a, on a station. Now, if you grew up in my home, the movie that played on the loop at Christmas time was A Christmas Story. We were folky. If you grew up in my wife's house, the movie that played on the loop was It's a Wonderful Life because she's part of the fine culture. <laughs> we are very opposite in that regard. We, are, we were both, Katie was brought up with a background in piano. I was brought up with a background in electric guitar. Katie was brought up with a background in classical music. I was brought up in a background of WWF pro wrestling. <laughs> So you tell a lot about a family by what movie they choose to watch on the loop at Christmas time. But there has been a third movie introduced to the loop these days, and that is the movie Elf. Yes, Buddy. A child who's put in an orphanage and then sneaks into Santa's bag and is raised by elves and thinks he's an elf. Only to come back and try to find his father and realize that he's six foot three and not an elf. Well, some people tend to view adoption as that kind of weird thing. It's like elves adopting a human being. And the reason why I think it seems so foreign is because we don't know the greatest reality in the entire universe, which is adoption. Adoption by God is more fundamental to our existence than just about anything. And if the first, my goal, one of my goals in this sermon is for the first thing to come to your mind when I say the word adoption is not children. It's not buddy. It's God. J.I. Packer says that our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. So, if that's the case, if Packer is willing to put that kind of weight on this doctrine and say, look, you don't know adoption, you don't know Christianity then we do well to listen. Packer, Packer goes on to say this, Adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel, higher even than the gift of justification because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea. It's legal. It has to do with God as a judge, and it's conceived of in terms of law. While adoption is a family idea, it's conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Still quoting Packer. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, and it is. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. From Knowing God, page 186 to 188, if you've got my edition. Now, I want to spend some time looking and answering this question. How did God adopt us into his family? How are we adopted by God? So this is under God's adoption of us. First point, we were chosen for adoption. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We were chosen for adoption. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And with joy I read this text to you this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to to the purpose of his will. Now get this. Packer says that adoption is of the essence of Christianity. And here's one of the reasons he said it. Because adoption preceded the creation of this universe. Adoption flows from the heart of God before he ever said, let there be light. Adoption was already in God's heart Before God ever spoke those life-giving words, He had already marked out and planned to make certain people His sons and daughters. Adoption was not some sort of divine afterthought. It was not some sort of thing that slipped into God's plan after the first one failed. No, it flowed from the heart of God before the foundation of the world. If you are a Christian here this morning, if you are one who has been adopted by God, that adoption did not start with your conversion. That adoption started with God choosing you before the foundation of the world and making His destiny for your life, His destiny that He had planned for you before He ever laid the foundation of the earth, that person will be a son of mine. That person will be a daughter of mine. That was your destiny before you were ever born. When you were born, you didn't know it, but God said, adopted son, adopted daughter of mine, in time I will bring them to myself. Consider this story of Robert Peterson. He was conceived by an unmarried woman, and his siblings were shuffled around from one foster care to another, and their lives were an absolute nightmare. They were physically abused in one home, then they get shifted to another home, and he was sexually abused. Bob remembers eating from a dish on the floor like an animal. Later, he was adopted, but not his siblings. He laments when he thinks about their lives. He says, one has been married seven times, and another has been to prison twice, but for some reason, Mr. and Mrs. Peterson chose my picture out of a book of children available for adoption. That's how Bob came to be included in this family. Now, it just so happens, many years later, Bob is now happily married. He has a family, a loving family. He pastors a church. He's an assistant professor of a seminary. And also, he's an heir to a considerable considerable estate because the man who adopted him was a millionaire. Now, as great as that is and as great as Robert Peterson's story is, we have a greater story. We have a far greater story because we have been adopted by someone who is even greater than a Mr. Peterson. We have been adopted by the Father who owns everything. More than that, God's choice of us was not motivated by some arbitrary glance into a photo album. It was motivated by profound love. In love, He predestined us to become adoption as sons. Behind God's adoption of you is the love of God flowing toward you particularly. So how should we personalize this to ourselves? Well, here's, here's one way. 
Man did not invent adoption. God did. Adoption was in the mind of God before man even had a mind. God's adoption of us as a vertical reality precedes couples adopting children as a, as a horizontal reality. Therefore, the reality of vertical adoption must influence how we think about orphan care and horizontal adoption. This means that when we mention the word adoption, what should come to our mind is not first our adoption of children, but God's adoption of us, since our adoption of children was preceded by God's adoption of us. Also, notice this. When God adopted people to be his sons and daughters, he didn't just choose the nation of Israel. God is a transcultural adoptive dad. He has kids from all over, from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he loves it that way, and he will have it that way. So he has... He, So children of different ethnicities are a beautiful picture in a family of the gospel. They're a beautiful picture of what God does. God takes people who are not only unworthy, who look different, and group them into the same family. That's called the church. He has children of many different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. He's brought people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into his family. And we ought to emulate him in this. That's number one. Number two, not only were we chosen for adoption, we were redeemed to adoption. We were redeemed. In other words, the purpose of our redemption is so that we would be adopted. Galatians chapter 4. Turn with me there, please. Flip back to Galatians chapter 4. One book back from Ephesians. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under law, Why? Why did God send His Son into the world? To redeem those who were under the law, but that wasn't the only reason, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here we learn how God accomplishes our adoption in history. He doesn't just choose us and then predestine us to be sons and daughters and then leave us like that's going to happen apart from Jesus. No, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and now God is laying out how that comes to fruition in history. Namely, it comes to fruition in history by, first of all, the Son of God coming into the world, redeeming those for whom God had... redeeming those God had given Him, and then making them into sons and daughters of God. So I want to answer four questions briefly under this second point of why we, we were redeemed to adoption. First question is, why do we need to be redeemed? Why do we need to be redeemed? Well, most people can kind of view adoption like the musical Annie, right? Sweet little red-haired girl, cute. And in order to get into Daddy Warbuck's family, she's got to really impress him. Work real hard at it. Put on the best face, dress up real nice. At least that's what everyone at the orphanage tells her, right? We think we have to be on our best behavior. We have to thwart the plans of someone who's trying to get in and take our spot. But this is the furthest thing from the truth of God's adoption of us than we could ever get. Because we are not little annies, and we are not sweet, and we are not cute. We are crack babies. And that's a, that's a devastating reality in the world, but we're actually worse than that. Because we are so addicted to our sin from the womb that we have everything to disqualify us from the favor of God. 
In fact, verse 7, look at verse 7 of Galatians chapter 4. It describes our condition. Slaves. See that word? Slaves. We are slaves of sin and slaves of Satan. That's why we need to be redeemed. Redemption means to purchase someone out of bondage. We are in bondage to our sin. We're in bondage to Satan. We are born that way. We are utterly unworthy of any love from God. We are in fact totally hell-deserving. And here God does something about it. That's why we need to be redeemed. Number two, who redeemed us? Who redeemed us? Verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God sent forth His Son. So God redeems us, but He redeems us by sending His Son into the world. Now, who is His Son? His Son is Jesus Christ. Now, can I just pause here? This is a parenthesis, okay? I just want to blow your mind for a minute. I just want to blow your mind theologically for a minute with what I learned and what has been thrilling my heart the last couple of days. If, this, if you get to the end of this little two-minute excursus and say, I don't understand anything you said, I'll come back. But I want, I want you to try to get your mind around this reality, okay? God sent forth His Son, okay? This means that He was already His Son before He sent Him, Right? Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was already the Son of God prior to the God the Father sending Him into the world. But, I want to say this. Although the Sonship of Jesus Christ is eternal, He was still adopted by God on the earth as the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, how can the world, can I say that? The eternal Son of God is adopted by God? Yes, Here's why. Psalm 2-7 says this, You are my son, and today I have begotten you, or I have become your father. And no less than three times in the New Testament is this verse applied to Jesus Christ. Now, this verse and its context in the Psalms was originally applied to the king of Israel. That's what Psalm 2 is fundamentally first and foremost about. But because in a special sense, the king of Israel was God's son, however, every worthy occupant of David's throne prefigured prefigured the great coronation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So the New Testament applies this verse to Jesus first at his baptism. Remember, Jesus baptized and he comes up and the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son. You are my son. It's an allusion to Psalm chapter 2. But it also occurs at the transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured before his disciples and shown in all of his glory. And the father again speaks and says, this is my son. Now, do these words contradict the conclusion that I said earlier that Jesus' sonship is eternal? No. Here the father speaks of his adoption of the eternal Son as His incarnate Son. See, the Son of God changed when He came into history. He didn't change in terms of deity, but He came, became what He was not. He became a man. And so, as a result of that, the Father then adopts Him as His Son, as Jesus Christ, as the God-man, as the man who is both God and man, sharing two natures in one person. Here the Father speaks of His adoption as the eternal Son, as His incarnate Son. Now, He who was always the Son by virtue of His deity, now becomes the Son by virtue of His humanity. Now, it's not only there at the baptism and transfiguration, it's also there at the resurrection. Here's what Acts 13 says, And we bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This He has fulfilled to us their 
to the, this he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus, as it's written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I've begotten you. So the resurrection was a claiming and adopting of Jesus Christ by God the Father. Now, that's amazing. That is significant. God the Father adopts Jesus, but not only that, Jesus himself was adopted by Joseph. Jesus is both adopted by his earthly father, and Jesus is adopted by his heavenly father. That just blows my mind. So central to God's intention, not only in our salvation, but in the very work of Jesus Christ. Adoptions written plain all across the whole work. Now let me ask you this question. Jesus Christ is this. Do you know him as this? Do you know him as this one who is the eternal son of God who has come into the earth? Now why did he come? Number three. So why do we need to be redeemed? Who redeemed us? Third question. How did Jesus Christ redeem us? Well, the text tells us. Verse 4. God sent forth his son, born of woman. He wasn't that before. Born of the Virgin Mary. He's born as a virgin, sinless. Why? So he, here he comes. He becomes a man. He assumes our nature. Although God, the son, the son of God has always been the Son, we are not automatically God's children by being born in the earth. It's wrong. It's unbiblical to speak that way. You can speak of it in very qualified senses. But in general, you cannot say that you are a son of daughter of God if you are not, have not been adopted by God through Jesus Christ. Nobody has the right to claim sonship or daughterhood from God who is not in relationship to Christ. He died to make that possible. In order for us to become God's children, a connection between God and us has to be made, and Jesus is that connection. He is the one who becomes a man, and He is the one who remains God, because God is the offended party, man is the needy sinner. Jesus becomes God, or does not become God. He is God who becomes man to solve that separation, to resolve that, to bridge that. So he who has always existed as the Son of God becomes a human being in order to make us God's children. And how does he do that? Well, first of all, he becomes a man. Then he lives under the law. Notice, born of woman, born under law. He lives a perfect life, completely sinless, totally obedient to the revealed will of God. Absolutely every moral requirement that God ever required of humanity, Jesus Christ kept it perfectly, without blemish, spotless. And why did he do it? Because we haven't. We've broken God's moral requirements. We've violated His law. And Jesus comes into the earth as the eternal Son of God, takes on our humanity, lives a perfect life under the law, just like we are under the law. Verse 5 says, those who are under the law. That's all of us. We are under the law. We are required to obey the law. And we've broken it. So Jesus has to come and do our duty for us. He has to come and fix what we've broken. And he does that by perfectly keeping the law. But he not only does that, turn back to Galatians 3. He not only redeems us by living for us, but he redeems us by dying for us. Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Now look back at verse 10 because it's very important. Verse 10 says... Let me turn my Bible here. 
Verse 10 says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of the law and do them. Let me, let me summarize that for you. Anyone who is not a Christian is relying on their own works to get them right with God. They are hoping that when they stand before God in heaven, the, 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 the scale will tip in the balance of goodness and they'll get in. Do you know that according to that verse, if you're doing that, you're under the curse of God? You are under a curse. All those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why are you under a curse? Because you're cursed if you don't do everything written in the book of the law to perform it. If you don't fulfill every single requirement that God has ever asked of you, you don't get into heaven. You are under a curse. Continuing. Now, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Of course. It's impossible. No one's going to get right with God on the basis of law keeping. For the righteous shall live by faith. That's what God said back in Habakkuk 2. It's not, you don't get right with God by obedience to the law. You get right with God by trusting, by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who becomes, who does them shall live by them. Then verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So we're under a curse because we have failed to keep the law of God. And one of the ways that God, Christ redeems us is by obeying the law of God for us. But he also has to absorb our curse. He absorbs our curse for us. That is, he pays the penalty for our law breaking. He receives in his body the wrath of God due our sin. That's how we are redeemed. But notice, last question, why did he redeem us? Why all this? Why the anguish of the Son of God on the tree? Why this incredible drop from heaven to earth to be scorned for 30 years? Why? Sons and daughters. God wants sons and daughters. The adoption of us into God's family is why the Son of God entered the world. So not only does it prefigure creation, adoption goes back behind creation, but it's also central to the work of Jesus Christ. Number three, not only are we chosen for adoption, not only are we redeemed to adoption, we are sealed or we receive the Spirit through adoption. Continuing in Galatians chapter 4 verse 6, And because you are sons... Now, this great reality has happened. Jesus Christ has come, lived, died, rose... We've been united to Him by faith. We become sons of God. Zach read the key text this morning, John chapter 1, verse 12. We become the children of God by believing in Jesus. So we are sons. Now what does God do? Verse 6. He sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. God takes up residence in us. God not only adopts us in terms of uniting us to Christ, He adopts us personally. He enters into our lives by the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we know that the Spirit is taking up residence in our lives? Do you relate to God as Father? Do you relate to God through Jesus Christ as Father? It's evidence of the Spirit. You cry, Abba, Father, for you are no longer a slave, verse 7, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans 8.15 also speaks to this. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, what is this Abba cry? What is this cry of Abba, Father? Well, 
many of us, and we would be right to take it in this sense, many of us will take it as a, as a cry of intimacy. Abba, we've been well taught, is a, is a, is a, it's, a, it's equivalent to daddy. It's a cry of affection. It's a cry of, the, uh, of a true, genuine son to a true father. It is a, a cry of intimacy, and it's a sign of deep, deep personal connection and intense inward uh, love for God. But notice, I don't think that's the primary thrust of what the Abba cry is. Number, here's, here's the first reason. The Abba cry, the cry Abba Father, is, is noticed in verse Galatians 4 and Romans 8, it's crying Abba Father. Crying, if, if you, and don't do a lot of Greek words here, but it, if you look at the Greek, it's, very, it's a powerful word. It's not this, Father. It's, an, it's almost a, of an anguish, of a sense of deliverance. Crying, Abba, Father. You know, the only person recorded in Scripture to ever cry, Abba, Father, is Jesus Christ himself. Mark 14, 36 records this. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That's a cry for deliverance. What's the Father's will? We saw what the Father's will was. It wasn't to remove the cup. Jesus got crucified. The cup. What was in the cup? The righteous indignation of God that was due our sins. The curse was in the cup. That we just talked about in Galatians 3. That curse was in the cup. And it was not the Father's will. Why? He wanted sons and daughters. So, the Son of God, both eternal and adopted drinks the cup so that we can receive the gift of adoption and receive the spirit of adoption into our lives. So this Abba cry is a cry for deliverance. It's a cry for God to bring to completion our adoption. Now, you're saying, our adoption, there's, our adop- there's still more to come? Say, I'm a Christian. Been chosen for adoption, been redeemed to adoption, received the spirit of adoption... There's more adoption to come? You better believe there's more adoption to come. Judson has more adoption to come because we have to get some papers finalized. We have not finalized, completely finalized his adoption, and we're going to continue to write things for the next 18 years of his life. So there's, you can be authentically and really adopted into the family of God and yet need that adoption finalized. And that adoption is going to be finalized, and this is thrilling. This is point number four, last point. We will be glorified in adoption. So not only are we chosen for adoption, redeemed to adoption, sealed through adoption, we will be glorified in adoption. Turn with me one more time. Last text, Romans 8. And we are going to have to... I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm going to do profound injustice to Romans 8. This is worthy of a year of study. And I'm going to say about four things. And you're going to say, I want to know more. That's good. That's good. Because I do too. Romans 8. So I want to answer this question. What will our final adoption be like? And I want you to notice something. There is Exodus imagery all throughout this passage. Shot through with this language of Exodus. Being set free from bondage and being brought into land. And it's all the Exodus is in the background here. The Exodus pointed to this ultimately. 
So what will our adoption be like? Four things. Number one, it's going to be an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance. Bigger than Daddy Warbucks could ever give. Let's look at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you, do not, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, here we go, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided, that's such an important word, provided we suffer with him, in order that we also may be glorified with Him. I'm going to get to that in a minute. But what's our eternal inheritance, according to this verse? Heirs of God. What does that mean? It means the same thing that God told Abraham in Genesis 15.1, when He said, Behold, I am your God, your very great reward. We are heirs of God. That means our inheritance, first and foremost, is God Himself. We get God as our inheritance. What more could you want? You can't ask for anything bigger than that. God as the inheritance, as your inheritance. Going way back into eternity now. God chooses vast multitude that no one can number to make them their inheritance. The whole time he's thinking, I can't wait to give them myself. For all eternity, I'm going to give them myself. But not only that, we don't only get God. That's great. That's don't want anything else. I get God. You get everything God has. You're co-heirs with Christ. Which means you get the world. You get the new heavens. You get the new earth. Now does that give you incentive to suffer with Christ? Provided that you suffer with Him, that you also may be glorified with Him. An eternal inheritance. Not only that, we get the redemption of creation. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's be revealed of us. Yes, Paul, that is the biggest understatement you've ever written. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation it was subjected to futility. That's at the fall. Creation was put under a curse, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together until the present time. One day, creation will be redeemed. This world that we now see that's so racked with sin, that has so many orphans, that has so much injustice and violence, that has so much hatred of God and ignoring of God and neglect of God, will radiate with the glory of God. It will burn in this universe with God written all over it. And everyone who has not longed for that will not be included in it. The redemption of creation. Creation will be set free from its current corruption and bondage. And will be set free as the children of God are revealed to be who they really are and glorified in that great day. Number three, adoption of our bodies. I won't read the text, but it goes on 23 to 25 and it talks about the redemption of our bodies. We are not meant... To sit in an ethereal heaven, immaterial heaven, for ages upon ages, floating on clouds, playing harp. We were intended for bodily, re- bodily resurrection, bodily existence on a new heavens and a new earth. 
our lives will be much like our lives now without sin and radically God-centered. So our lives will be bodily, will be, will be in these bodies glorified, and we will experience not only the redemption of these bodies, but the redemption of the entire creation. And verse 24 says, In this hope we were saved. This is such a core part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The redemption and resurrection of the body is so critical. Paul throws it in as saying, if you don't believe this kind of stuff, you're not even a Christian. And then finally, we not only get an eternal inheritance with God at the center, we get the renewal of all creation and we are given, we are given it to rule for God's glory. We are not only received the redemption of our bodies, but we will be conformed to the person of Jesus Christ in our moral character. Those whom he predestined, he conformed to the image of his son, verse 29, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he glorified. We're going to get likeness to Jesus in terms of our moral character. Now, how should we think about being all of this in light of being glorified in adoption? Well, adoption is costly, and it means that we choose suffering now. Our adoption of people, of other sinners. You know, my son's beautiful, but come live with us, you know. Our adoption of people, taking other children into our homes or, or, or giving sacrificially, stings. It stings. But it means that we're willing to embrace that now so that we can experience glory later on. One mom has really gotten a hold of this. Her name's Heidi. She's 32. Nine? Nine nine children. Here's what she wrote on her blog. Katie passed this on to me. And this is well worth it. And I, and I just want to read a part of what she said. This is what moved her to, 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 to as a 32-year-old woman who's looking out at the American dream, who's looking out at picket fences, she says... She says, I see the white picket fences, the new cars, the private schools, the suburban dream, the perfect family. I see that. And I know that I'm saying no to that. And I am fully aware that that is within my reach. But what made her not choose that, but rather choose to go to Ethiopia and adopt six children? She says, I wish I could tell you that the sacrificial life of following after Jesus and being his actual hands and feet on this planet earth would bring rewards on this planet. But I can't because it probably won't happen. I wish I could tell you that if you take an orphan and love that child as your own flesh and blood, that you'll be blessed in this life in more ways than just spiritual. But I can't because you might not be. I wish I could tell you that it's easy to adopt, that it's effortless and glamorous and always beautiful, but I can't because it isn't. I wish I could tell you that it's easy after you adopt, but I can't. It's tougher than tough some days. I wish I could tell you that this life of sacrifice is painless and prosperous, but I can't because it's often painful and rarely prosperous in the earthly. I wish I could tell you that all those warm and comfortable platitudes, but I can't because they're just not true. But I can tell you this. This life is not your own. So none of the above matter anyway. When I stepped off the cliff 
in full recognition of that reality that this life is not my own. I have no control over my life ever since. Yes, I have choices. I realize that this road is what God has led me on. I chose this road. I said yes to this calling. I agreed to take six kids that I did not have to call my own. But once I said yes the first time, I could never say no after. Then she concludes with this. Love, loving the fatherless, loving the abandoned, loving the seemingly hopeless. The narrow road requires sacrifice. The narrow road, it's lonely, it's long, it's difficult, it's full of suffering and struggle and sacrifice. But isn't that what following our Jesus is all about? If you're following a Jesus that doesn't demand sacrifice of all earthly endeavors, then I don't know what Jesus you're following. Didn't Jesus, after all, sacrifice all earthly endeavors for us? Why did he sacrifice so, so much so that he could love you? How much more, then, should we sacrifice in order to love him? And if loving him means loving the unloved, then what does it mean if we live in comfort while the unloved go on unloved, while the orphans stay orphaned, while kids in the streets still roam the streets? She, God has gripped her heart. She has caught, a, caught the vision of the glory that awaits her. And it's freed her to pursue this calling. Now let me conclude with a few applications for us and then we'll be done. Now let me be clear at this point, lest I be unbiblical. Scripture does not command you as an individual Christian to adopt anyone. But it does expect us as God's children, as the church, as part of his church, to care for orphans in their affliction. And you have to find some significant way for how God would have you to do that. For some, this will mean adoption. For others, it will mean giving their lives to, to serve and help and assist those families that have adopted with their wisdom and their experience of parenting and those kind of things. For others, it will mean giving sacrificially so that a family who is unable to adopt with our finances like me is able to take a child into their family. Whatever form our care of orphan ta- orphans takes, we know that it's what God has called that God has called his people to care for them. It's huge on the heart of God. So how can we care for them? And with these things, I close. Number one, pray about how God would have you to respond to what we've heard this morning. The implications of being adopted by God and living that out on a horizontal level and caring for orphans. What does it mean? It may or may not be adoption for your family, but God has called all of his people to have a heart for the fatherless and extend his love to them. If it's not adoption, maybe it's helping another family with the cost of adoption or fostering a child or mentoring a child. Say, I can't take him into my home, but I can get involved in Mentor Kids Heritage and help come alongside a single mom who needs, who's basically raising an orphan with, with one parent gone. Sponsoring, an or, sponsoring a child visiting orphans, praying regularly for them, or serving as a voice for the fatherless. Number two, you can pray and work towards a greater culture of adoption here at HBC. And I know I speak for our pastors. They've told me many times uh, personally that they desire that the, the culture of adoption that currently exists in this church to be fanned into flame and to continue to move forward. But here's the way I want us to think of it. I want us to think, brothers and sisters, family of God, as the adoption of children into this church as our responsibility. Not merely the responsibility of those who are adopting. Like, I'm so glad you're adopting, brother. I'm so glad you're adopting. I'm so thankful for that. And you all have not been any way absent from that. But I'm, I'm saying to excel still more. I want us to feel like, what, someone's adopting? What do they need? What do they need? 
and respond. Because God looks down and says, pure religion, undefiled religion, undefiled religion. That, that stirs my heart. That brings a smile to the face of God. So, we can do a lot more than we can as individuals, as a church. Getting behind um, those who are called to do this. We can do more for God's glory and the good of the fatherless as the body of Christ than all of us going at it alone. And this means that we need to preach on it regularly. That we need to encourage each other to think and pray about taking that leap. And then rally around each other when we do and hold the rope for them in prayer and in financial giving and helping each other with fundraising efforts and praying intentionally for and with each other. Attending the homecomings when the kids come home, as you all have been so faithful to do. So all that stuff of saying, look, God, adoption is so central to God's heart. Throwing ourselves into mentor kids' heritage. Throwing ourselves into solo moms and caring for the kids. Whatever we can do to, to show that God loves the fatherless and the widow. He calls himself the father of the fatherless. Therefore, we want this church, if this church is going to reflect the glory of God, one of the things that's going to have to be characteristic of it is they learn that God's the father of the fatherless by the way that we care for kids. Here's another practical thing. Just watch your email this week. Okay, If you're on Pastor Keith's email list, I'm going to be sending out uh, a daily video to help serve your heart for the fatherless. So watch that and, uh, and continue to pray about those things. And if you are, if you have adopted or you are interested in pursuing adoption, come next week. After the service, Lord willing, next Sunday on November 8th, we're going to have a meal for anyone who's interested in adopting or, pers- or learning more about adoption or who has adopted. Please come. It's going to just last about 30 minutes. We don't want to keep you long. We know you got kids. So 1220, 12-15, 12-20, we'll eat briefly, have a time of fellowship, and then we're going to have a Q&A panel with some of the adoptive families in our church just to, just to get feedback on their experiences. And, of course, all the other adoptive families who can come can be there. They can answer questions too. So um, if, you, if you do intend to come, though, please bring, a, bring some sort of dish or something. We don't know exactly how many people are going to come because we, we didn't have a sign up or anything, but if you can just bring something, that would be great. And that way we could be able to share it with others and enjoy a time together. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't say in this sermon before we close that don't miss the most fundamental reality in the universe. If you're here and you've never been adopted by God, that's the place to start. That's where we start. You start by giving your sin to Jesus Christ and saying, I'm done. I want to follow you. I want to be adopted by God. I want to no longer be an orphan. I feel like I'm going nowhere in life. I feel like I'm spinning my wheels. I feel like I'm just repeating the same mistakes. So you know why? Because you're an orphan. Come into the family of God. God will train you. God will discipline you. God will care for you just as a good father does. So that's the first thing. And we get, we get adopted by God by believing in his name. We get adopted by God by receiving Jesus Christ into our lives through repentance and faith. And believing all this stuff that we've just been thinking about the last 45, 50 minutes. And then we realize this. Visiting orphans in their distress mirrors what God did for us and ours. He visited us in our distress, brothers and sisters. Sometimes adoption means entering into some awful situations. That's exactly what God did. 
It didn't get any worse. He visited Israel in their affliction in Egypt in order to deliver them from it. God doesn't just visit, look at the affliction and say, I'm not going to do anything about that. No, God visited Israel in their affliction and he delivered them out of it. Got them out of Egypt, got them out of bondage, took them into a new place. He adopted Israel. Romans 9, 4, to Israel belongs the adoption of sons. So God adopts Israel. But not only that, God would call us as the church to do something about it. Not just merely feel it, not just merely sympathize, not just merely sense that, yes, there's some oppression in the world. Yes, there's distress. Yes, it's a sinful world. We're all going to have problems. But he says, be my hands and feet. Be my people. Go do it. Relieve something. There are 143 million. Save one of them. Visiting orphans in their affliction is also an emblem of the future day when God will finally and completely deliver us from the sufferings of this present age and make all things new. And wouldn't it be great if we had a lot of kids with us? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time that we've had to share together over your word and your word rejoicing in this great truth of adoption. We are amazed. We are stunned all over again that you would love us in such a way as this, that adoption would be so close to your own heart. Everyone here who is a Christian, Father, we recognize is adopted. There are more adopted uh, men and women in here than there are adopted physically children because spiritual adoption is greater even than physical adoption. And we thank you for this privilege. We thank you that we can all recognize ourselves as orphans. We're all weak. We're all needy. Some of us are physically in that spot. And we pray that you would move us as a church to greater care for those whom you love and are concerned about. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.